In our study through the book of Psalms, we're finishing up in just a few weeks, but I draw your attention again to the second Psalm, Psalm 2. In your Bibles, if you have them, or they are, it is printed on the back of your sermon outline in your bulletin. Let me read the first three verses again. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. So far, the reading of God's word, and we will address the rest of the psalm as we go through it. I'd like to confess to you that sometimes I worry. Most of you know me as an optimistic person, as an extrovert, with the problems that come with being optimistic and extroverted, but, but there are times when I worry. And times when I worry uh, often become times when I become what a psychologist would call a catastrophic thinker. Now let me tell you what a catastrophic thinker is. A catastrophic thinker is somebody who looks at his circumstances that are not too good. And then he begins to spin out the worst possible consequences from those circumstances. And he begins to fixate on them and to think that they are inevitable. And they begin to crush his spirit. Can anyone else here relate to ever being a catastrophic thinker? And we get stuck there. And when that happens regularly in your life, and when that happens repeatedly in your life, it causes you to live with a debilitating anxiety. And sometimes even a despair. And you can't see it, but it's a function of this sort of catastrophic thinking. And... Uh, if you can relate to that, let me just tell you that I've found in my own life I need to be aware of that, and when it happens that it's a battle going on, and what I need to learn to do is to take refuge in the Lord, that I can look at my circumstances as the nations rage, as the kings conspire, as the, as the world, it seems, is in fury around me, and I can take refuge in the Lord. And the end of our psalm today, it says, In the midst of the kingdoms in conflict and the turbulence that's all around us, blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we're going to look at Psalm 2 that leads us to that final conclusion that no matter what your circumstances are, instead of catastrophic thinking, learn, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, announced at the beginning of this psalm is a kind of cosmic treason where God's enemies resolve to throw off God's rule in their lives. 
And I have to tell you, I did some catastrophic thinking a little bit this week, thinking about how it seems in the world there is marshaled uh, a group of enemies of God and against his church. And I got in uh, the mail Newsweek magazine this week. Now, Newsweek magazine is far from sympathetic to evangelical Christianity. Newsweek is, by its own admission, a very liberal cultural gatekeeper that has secular thinking at its roots. Uh, It often has critical articles. But this week, the cover story is The War on Christians, written by a Muslim who says, it is time for the news media to wake up and to quit ignoring the genocide that is going on in Nigeria, in Indonesia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Iran. And though there are, yes, there is Islamophobia in the world, she writes, the Christophobia that has gripped a huge portion of the world is seeking to destroy the Christian church in those lands. And so even in Nigeria, there is an organization called Boko Haram that has killed dozens of people just in the month of January. And Boko Haram has, last year they they murdered over 500 people and burned many churches, and they resolutely declare that they will destroy every Christian in the country of Nigeria. And, and, And I start reading this, and I start to fret. And I start to think, oh no, what is going to happen to the church around the world? Oh no, Uh, these forces fueled by petroleum dollars, every time I put gas in my car, the money goes to the Islamic world that fuels uh, these people that are doing, oh no. Or maybe, maybe you've been paying attention a little closer to home, what's happening in New York City this week, today, as the mayor of New York and the Department of Education and its chancellor have resolved to evict over 60 churches that rent space for their gatherings in public school buildings. And you may know it's it's waged back and forth in the courts, but these churches are not rich churches. These churches are churches without resources, poor, but helping their communities, the very communities in which they, uh, they serve and gather. And they're out. Eviction. And I start to think, oh no. Oh no, what's going to happen to these churches? And, and again, I, if I'm not paying attention to myself, I spiral into this catastrophic thinking. And we're supporting one of those churches, you know. And, and they wrote to us this week, our, 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 please help, thank you for your help. Please help us. Please pray for us down in, in uh, Forest Hills. What is going on? The psalm raises a question with astonishment about this senseless rejection. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, the rulers gathering together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Why would they do this? And the answer comes to us from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible that there is a great conflict going on on earth. There is a great conflict that began when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden decided to do what is said here, to throw off the chains, to throw off the fetters, because God's rule, remember, you shall not eat of that tree, how unreasonable God was. And they broke the chains. 
that were restrictive. How dare he place this restriction on me? Sure, I can eat of any of the trees in the garden, but how dare he restrict me? So they threw off the chains. Set themselves against God. You get to Genesis 6, the time of Noah, and mankind in rebellion, fully in rebellion, right before the flood And then after the flood, a couple chapters later, by the time you get to Genesis 11, as the rulers of the earth gather some momentum and become proud in their arrogance, they say, let's build a tower. Let's build a name for ourselves against God. And God comes and scatters them. And then Pharaoh wants to annihilate the kingdom of God among the people of God. And and, and, and it goes on and on until Jesus Christ came into the world. And we are told that when Jesus came, men preferred darkness rather than light. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And the chant grew through the Gospels until finally on that day they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! What's going on? There is reason to say... There's a battle, and it's upsetting. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I know that's one of Charles's passages in his own apologetics teaching. I've heard him talk about it. Verse 21. It teaches that all humankind commits cosmic treason. Here's what it says. Though they know God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, right? My way is better than God's way. That becomes the motto of the human heart. But this is more than just a rebellion against God in in Psalm 2. It's a prophecy, and it has a fulfillment Because when we read through the New Testament, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in all the New Testament. It's really fascinating. In Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28, which are also printed in your program, um, it's, it's applying the rulers gathering together in its fulfillment when Pontius Pilate and King Herod and the discussion with the Gentile Roman rulers conspired together to put the Lord's anointed one to death. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed That's the impulse of the human heart. In John 15, verse 18, Jesus said, look, and it's a tender moment with his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, saying, guys, it is going to be rough out there. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so there is a rebellion, and it's it's, a, it's timely for each one of us to ask, am I a part of that rebellion? I don't know where your heart is today. But am I a part of that rebellion? You say, oh no, I'm not out to kill the Christians in Nigeria, and I'm not out to uh, even kick churches out of public schools. But, but when you walk down 
through Times Square and, and you, you join in the worldly way of, of living your life, could it be, could it be that worldliness has so captured you or me that in practical living I've thrown myself in with the lot of those who refuse the lordship of God? As you send your young people off to college, they will take classes in philosophy and the philosopher will tell them, it's time for you to break the chains and throw off the fetters that uh, your pastor, that your church, your Christianity put on you. You need to read Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. You need to read Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, bestsellers, New York Times. And you need to be a free thinker and think for yourself and stop all this Jesus stuff. Well, God responds to this cosmic treason. What does he do? He sets his king over the nations. That's point two. And you see, if you follow through verses four through nine, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And I just want to ask you this most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's why I wanted us to study it before we leave our study in the book of Psalms. What is God's response? Basically twofold. His first response is to laugh. He laughs. Now, you know, it's probably not a good thing for God to be laughing at you. Because there are many passages that speak about the laughter of God against the wicked. As God looks and he sees how absurd it is for puny man to raise his fist to Almighty God. Psalm 37, verse 13. Psalm 37, verse 13 says, The wicked plot against the righteous, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Psalm 59, verse 8, it's about the enemies of God who are mocking God, saying, God can't hear us. But you, O Lord, will laugh at them. You scoff at the nations. Because to fight against God is like a mosquito fighting the truck on the LIE. Am I right? Gulliver's Travels, remember? Anybody have to read that? Who are the Lilliputians? The Lilliputians, Gulliver's washed up on shore, and the Lilliputians are one thumb high, you know, and they, they tie his hair down with tent pegs, and the chairman, the king of the Lilliputs is standing on his chest, waving his finger at him, and it's, and it's laughable. Don Cameron reminded me this week about Milton's Paradise Lost and how in the fifth book of Paradise Lost, the father and the son see Satan escape. And Satan is now urging his, his, uh, his demons to rebellion against God. And the father says to the son, we have to protect our throne. We must protect our omnipotence. And then they laugh, and they laugh, and they laugh. 
And there is something liberating when you hear the laughter of God in the face of adversity. It stops your catastrophic thinking. It stops my catastrophic thinking. It wakes me up. Wait, 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 wait a minute. John, who's in charge? Who's ultimately victorious? Yeah, can you hear the, the laughter of God? And his is a holy laughter. His is a righteous but judging laughter. And it sets us back to sanity again. He laughs, but he also acts. And what he does is he, he says, let me tell you the solution to this rebellion of mankind. The solution is for me to put my king on my holy hill, to establish my king, and to bring my kingdom forward. And he makes David his king, and then he makes Solomon his king, and ultimately he makes Jesus his king. And I just want to take a few moments to trace this out for us. Because in this church, we want to know our Bibles. We want to connect the dots. It's very important. Where, where is this language of uh, installing my king, and today he has become my son, and ruling with an iron scepter, and ask of me for the nations? Where's all this coming from? And if you open in your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 7, you start in verse 11. You have this moment. Let me just trace out. I'm only going to trace it out briefly, but trace out this thread where Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says in the middle of verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. And I, this is God talking, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. So David is first going to be established. Your house will be established. Then your son, who's going to build the temple. Who's that? That's Solomon. So clearly, there is going to be a legacy going on. But then he adds this word, forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. What does that sound like? And your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne will be established forever. And that prophecy that Nathan gives to David becomes a thread that runs through the New Testament. It hits in Psalm chapter 2, which is a coronation psalm. That's what it was. And these were read when the kings were established. It's a coronation psalm, but it's so pregnant it points forward to this establishment of the kingdom of God forever that cannot be broken. And every Christian, our hearts should swell with joy as we follow this thread through the Bible. Yes, verse 6 of our psalm, it says, I will install him. That's coronation language. Verse 7 says, I will be uh, his father. He will be my son. That's when the investment of the new king is announced and is said. And of course, when we hear this announcement, this is my son, what do we think of? Jesus at his very baptism, when the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when the voice of God is clearly heard, this is my son, listen to him. And in Revelation chapter 5, it's connected all the way back to King David. With the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne in Revelation 5, when the angel has called out, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals, 
And nobody is. And John is weeping. Suddenly, the archangel comes to him. He says, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, the next phrase. Here it is in heaven. The big scene, the big moment as Christ is being received at his ascension for his coronation at the right hand of the Father. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. And you have the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the coronation, right before your eyes. When Paul is on his missionary journey to Antioch, and he wants to encourage Jews and Gentiles to believe in Jesus, he quotes from Psalm 2 again. We tell you the good news. This is Acts 13, 32 through 39. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. Scripture quoting scripture. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. For when David had served God's purposes in his generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his father, his body decayed, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Then verse 8, he says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations. And what do you think that's all about? Did King David own the nations? No. Did Solomon own the nations? No. What is this all about? Here you have the seed of the Great Commission. And the solution to the nation's rage against the world is the Great Commission of Jesus Christ, who said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel, discipling the nations, calling the nations to me. Oh, but wait, wait, didn't, didn't, wasn't there the command, but ask of me. Did Jesus ask? Did he ever ask for the nations? And you know what? He did. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all peoples, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Hearts from every nation are recaptured and brought back to God. The rebels, you and me, the rebels, we are brought back to God. He recaptured us It's the, through the Great Commission, and it launches straight out. So Long Island is part of the nations, and right now people are coming back to Jesus from rebels to those who follow him. I talked with a guy this week. I, I had my garage door replaced, and when the repairman was done, he says, to, he's standing there with his assistant. He says, by the way, there is a hell, isn't there? Wow, that's quite a question. I was reading about this week, studying in God's word about he's, gonna, he's coming in judgment with an iron scepter. But I said to him, I didn't just jump in with that. I, I said, well, you know, anytime anybody ever asks me about hell, I remind them that that's really a question about God. Isn't that true? 
I don't go right to the question of whether or not there's a hell. I say, first, let's just talk about the character of God. And he was in no hurry, and his partner, they were so interested to know what is God like. And we talked about the holiness of God, that he's pure, that he's beautiful, that he is light, that God is love, that there's no darkness in God, that God's character is spotless and, and, and sweet and righteous, so beautiful. And sin, ugly, cruelty, lust, greed, violence, selfishness, doesn't fit with God. Do you agree? He kind of, well, well. I said, if, if this check I just put in your hand, if, if this check bounces... I lied to you, and I said I was going to pay, but this check bounces. I said, how would you feel about that? He said, I wouldn't be too happy. I said, you'd come after me, wouldn't you? You'd try and collect that, wouldn't you? You'd say, it would be right and just, and if I don't, what would you do? You'd sue me. You'd take me to court, right? Yes, I would. Justice requires, and if I, if I, if I put a knife to you, it requires that I be punished for that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I said, well, that's just a hint of why God must righteously punish sin in hell. Do you understand? He says, wow, that's right. So I got him a Bible, a brand new Bible, and I gave him a My Heart, Christ's Home, and I gave him a gospel tract, uh, maybe one a little better than the one Charles got. Uh, but but I, I gave him that, and God really touched me. His wife called me the next day. I don't know her, but she came to thank for the Bible. They didn't have a Bible. They look forward to reading it. I know that I can follow up with them. The nations, you see, are coming to God. Well, he says, be wise, be warned, be blessed. Point number three, take refuge in him. And finally, the psalmist finishes this hymn and he turns to the world. And it is as though he now stands in front of the United Nations. Have you ever seen that podium at the United Nations? All the nations are assembled with their rulers who represent all their people. And he says to them, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And he's saying to me... Don't get stuck in your catastrophic thinking, John. You know, in in conventional wisdom, it says, don't sweat the small stuff, and then the next line goes, and it's all small stuff. Well, that's not exactly true. It should go like this. Don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff to God. Without the to God part... You might not be able to get rid of your catastrophic thing. You might be. But, but then you know that God is God. Christ is Lord, enthroned on high. Then you, re, you become wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, we are told all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. If you want wisdom, come to Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. Be warned. And verse 10 rushes through to, down to, to verse 12. Yes, he will rule with a, an 
a rod of iron. And in, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, I told you this conflict goes not just starting at Adam, it goes all the way to the end, where we are told of the rider on the white horse on the judgment day that will come in history. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on the white horse, dressed in fine linen, linen, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Right out of Psalm 2, verse 8. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What what do you do with this? My friend Jack Miller used to say this. Here's, Here's your takeaway today, as I said in the beginning. He used to say, there is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. And that's what Psalm 2 teaches us. Yes, he is the king of kings, and he's coming again, but there is refuge in him. So I turn from my unbelief. Oh, friends, listen. You kiss the sun. What's that? That's just submission. That's just homage. You pay homage in the ancient world that way. It's just submission. Would we describe your relationship with Jesus Christ? Would we describe my relationship with Jesus Christ as one of submission? I think that's an important word. Are you submitted to him? And we come to him in prayer. That's submission. We come in the sacraments now. That's submission to him. And even... I I hate to admit this, but even my worry and my catastrophic thinking is of the same kind as the rebellion of the nations raging against God, my own sin of unbelief right in that moment. I have joined with with the false and the fools because I have forgotten that God is on the throne. And the solution for both the catastrophic thinker and the rebel is the same kiss the son that is submit to him he who has been raised from the dead who will not see decay submit to him and he will bless you blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him gives us a message to tell the nations it gives us a message to tell your neighbor down the block let's pray together shall we our father We ask that you would now, as we come to you, that we would take refuge in you. I know, Lord, that um, you will speak to each of us individually now. And I, I ask that each of us would have a calm, teachable, tender, faith-filled heart to believe, to submit, to surrender to you. And if it's the first time for someone, someone who would say, you know, I've been the fool, I've been the enemy, but now I want to, I want to pay homage to, I want to surrender to the Son, then today I do that. And I join the happy band of Christians. <laughs> then today is their day of salvation. But the rest of us, we pray we would submit again to you and surrender. Come and heal us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.